I get asked a lot, like, what is it like to have seven children? Right? That's, normally that's in a, like, seriously, what is it like to have, how do you, do you know how that happens and what's going on, et cetera? And I do, and, and my response, I like to steal a line from the comedian Jim Gaffigan. And some of you may know him. He said, imagine that you're drowning and someone hands you a baby. All right? That's how I would sum it up. Although, here's what I would say to that. The honest thing is that's how I felt with our first, our second, our third, our fourth, our fifth. It doesn't matter, all right? Whether it's your first or your seventh, you still feel like you're drowning and somebody's handing you a baby. But we, we love the joys and the challenges that come. We love our family. And yeah, it's chaotic a bit in the moment, but we, uh, we are so blessed and so grateful and, and so thankful to be a, at a church that welcomes that and loves that and values families and helps equip us and encourage us in this journey. We're so grateful uh, for you and for God's provision uh, through this family. Now, speaking of drowning, that's where we're going today. We're going to talk about a guy who had some experience with some near death drowning experiences in his life, the Apostle Paul. You know we've been studying the book of Acts for the last two years, and we are almost done. For some of you, that's encouraging. For others of you, you're like, oh, I want more. I've loved it. I love narrative-based sermon studies in the book of Acts where we see the story played out. We see what God is doing in this process. We get to know the characters. We get to know Paul. But we are coming to an end. I'm going to hit Acts 27, and that just leaves Acts 28 between now and Easter will culminate on Easter Sunday. Tim will finish up our series. Last week, though, he took time, if you remember, the title was Guess Who? And it was a matter of how do we respond to the gospel? Who is Jesus? And we saw that Paul obeyed the gospel. And because he obeyed the gospel, he responded to it, he listened to it, and he was willing to be obedient to the gospel in that way. And and it changed his life and the lives of so many around him. And we we're kind of the last few weeks almost in a holding pattern, right? Paul is kind of in, a, in a, a sedentary place. He's stuck. He's in a holding pattern. He's having opportunities to share the gospel. We're seeing God's sovereignty through that. But, but he knows that God has told him he's going on to Rome, but he hasn't gotten there yet. And he's waiting in that process. And last week, we saw him give kind of his defense of the gospel before King Agrippa, right? Before Agrippa and Bernice in that process. And it ends with Agrippa saying, hey, if this guy had not wanted to go to appeal to Caesar, I'd have no reason to keep him here in prison. I'd let him go. But finally, we now get to the place where Paul's going to go. And I'm excited to be able to open up Acts 27. It's a fascinating passage. Pastor Keith already alluded to this, that we talk about this storm that's there, and we'll get to that in a moment. But not just the story, but how it applies to our life. Now, there's 44 verses. If you go ahead and turn to Acts 27, there's 44 verses. It's a long passage, but we need to read it because we need to understand the story, and it reads like a story. Now, I could read it, but that's a lot of reading. I'm going to invite Belle to come up, and then I'm going to talk a lot after that. So I've asked one of our high school students, Belle Miller, to come and read the story for us. So turn to Acts chapter 27, page 93 in your pew Bible, I believe. That's... I was going to say that felt a little short, like I, I didn't think Acts came in the middle of Genesis, but what's, give me that one more time, 936, all right, page 936, Bell, read for us the story here in Acts 27. All right, hi guys, this is Acts 27, and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius, and embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. 
And putting out to sea, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea, along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off of Snidus. As the wind would not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive this voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. The centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea. From there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind, called the Northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergrid the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Syrtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail for Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to all take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread. Giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach. On which they planned, if possible, 
to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them at sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable. The stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to the land. Great. Thank you, Belle, so much. Now, the real reason I had Belle read that was in those first 12 verses are more words that I can't pronounce. And I thought, you know what? I'll let somebody... And she nailed it. She did a great, great job. Yeah, Wonderful, wonderful, and just really nice to hear it in a different voice and to hear it as a story. Well done, Mel. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time this morning. God, that is a lot to to take in. Fascinating passage of Scripture. 44 verses where there is a lot happening. In fact, God, as I read read that a number of times this week, it feels like it's straight out of a Hollywood movie. I feel like I've seen this movie. Right, and the ship, and it's struck, and it's this, and it's that, and there's darkness, and hope is lost, and then miracle happens, and, but this is true. This is in your word, God, and I think so much of the detail that is provided for us by Dr. Luke is to remind us that your word is true. It's active and living, even in the details of seafaring sailors and ships and how that all works in an area. God, it's true. And in the midst of it, you're sovereign. Your sovereign hand is, is in and above and over everything that is happening. Everything that has happened up to this point with Paul and everything that will happen in this chapter and everything that will happen to come. You are good and you are in control. And God, I pray as we open up your word today and we, we kind of look at this passage and, and, and do more than just look at the details. We look at how we can apply this to our life here today. Most of us are not going to be going on, a, on a, sh- a ship in Asia Minor and experiencing these type of conditions, but we do As Pastor Keith mentioned in his prayer, experience and endure storms on a regular basis. So God, help us to know how we can handle those and trust you in the process. God, help us to be hearers and doers of your word today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now in the Culver home, we like to play a game called Good News, Bad News. Probably we're not the only home that does that, right? You say, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. And you go back and forth on that. For instance, I've got some good news. Hey, there's going to be a snow day tomorrow. I've got some bad news, you're homeschooled and it doesn't matter, right? I've got some good news, hey, we're going on vacation. I've got some bad news, it's not to Disney World and it's going to be a 24-hour road trip through the night in our van all together, so sorry. I've got some good news, your grandparents are coming over for, for the weekend. I've got some bad news, that means we're going to clean all day long now to get ready for them, right? We do good news, bad news, and, and I thought of that as I was reading this passage because I felt a little bit like I was in that, in that, in that scenario, right? Hey, here's some good news, here's some bad, good news, bad news. We're kind of almost like the waves of a sea, we're back and forth a little bit, right? Finally, what, we get some good news, Paul's going to leave, he's been waiting for several years, he's been in this holding pattern, hey, good news, we're going, we're sailing off to Rome, here we go. We're on our way. He even gets the favor of Julius, who's in charge, the centurion, who's, who's kind to him and, and kind of looks after him. And then we get some bad news, right? We hit a storm, a major, major storm in this process. And then we get some even worse news, right? They go days and there's no sun and they're not eating and their hope is lost. And then we get some good news again where an angel appears to Paul and says, you know what? 
What I said is still true. I'm going to take care of you. No one's going to lose. And then I love this verse. I think it's, where is it? Verse 25, where he says, So take heart, men, for I have faith. This is Paul. That it will be exactly as I've been told. Just what he said. And this is where I got this idea. So take heart. It's going to be just as I told we're going to be saved. Bad news? But we must run aground on some island. Like, seriously. Like, good. We've been through. It's literally hell on the sea is what it feels like. And now you're saying we're going to be saved. And I'm kind of expecting the the heavens to open up and everything to calm down. Bad news. Hey, you're still going to run aground. It's still going to be pretty dicey. A little hit or miss here in that process. And then we see good news again where they get rescued in that process. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. A story that only God can write. Now, a little context, if you were in a small group this past week and studied, you probably are familiar with the map that's going to be up on the screen here in just a moment that kind of shows a little bit of this journey. And you'll see the red lines. We start all, all the way over on the sign near Judea, right, where they took off from Caesarea and Sidon. They board the ship. They make it up to Mira, right? They get to change to a grain ship sealing to Italy. They move on to a couple other places. And then it's right in the middle there, right, where they get to Crete, Fair Havens, that, that Paul gives this warning that says, hey, I've got a bad feeling about this, okay? I don't think this is a good idea. We're, we're entering into winter travel. Not an ideal time to take a trip at this time. And, and I just, I don't think this is a good idea. But people don't listen to him, and we'll come back to that in a few minutes. They don't listen to him, and they, they take off. They listen. Julius listens to the owner of the ship. Hey, I think it's okay if we get out now. Maybe we can get to Phoenix, which I find a little ironic, right? I actually was in Phoenix this past week, and I thought, now I get why everybody wants to go there in the wintertime, right? It's how fast can we get to Phoenix before the storms come? It all makes sense now. It's biblical now for those who are vacationing uh, down in Phoenix. And it was 85 there this week, and I wanted to be there too. Uh, but they get there, and they decide to go off. They, they don't listen to that, those heatings and that warning. They go off, and as we saw in the story, it gets awful. It gets terrible in this process. And we'll dive into those details a little bit, but just so you can kind of see where they were going. Now, why does, why does God take 44 verses and have Luke record this story for us? Is it, is it so that we can be better sailors in the process, so that we can avoid these mistakes? I, I, don't, I don't think so. I think there's probably a few different reasons, and I, I don't know. I'm not inside of God's head in this process per se. I think one of them is what we've talked about in Acts is, is God is all about displaying his sovereignty, right? He's in charge, we're not. What he does doesn't often make sense to us or in the way we would do it, and that's what makes him God. But he's in it, and he's above it, and he's totally in control of everything, even the things, especially the things that don't make sense. God is sovereign, and he is able to use whatever conditions that are there for the most amount of glory to come to him in the process. We can't miss that, and we'll get into that. Secondly, I think what I see here is that Luke is on the ship. We don't know if Luke was the doctor for the ship. He signed on in that way. We don't know if he and Aristarchus, who are a part, are, are kind of attendants or slaves to Paul. Prominent Roman citizens, if they were imprisoned, would be allowed to have one or two slaves or attendants to come with them. We're not exactly sure. But Luke certainly knows a lot about what's happening here. Understands a lot about sailoring and seafaring in that process as well. And I think that part of it is we see times where God gives us detail, maybe more detail than we need or or expect that we should get, to remind us that what God does is is true and, and what God displays and gives us in Scripture really happened. 
This was illustrated to me this past week where I came across a story that talked about a group of men from Scotland that were sent out scholars to actually make this same similar voyage in an attempt to disprove the account that we see in Scripture from Dr. Luke. And they thought, you know, this couldn't have happened in a way. There's got to be errors. Let's go find this out. And in this process, one of them, an archaeologist named Sir William Ramsey from Scotland, in the process of going out to disprove, disprove this, actually came to become a Christian because he saw how accurate of a description, the most accurate description of seafaring that he had seen in this document from that time. Fascinating. Again, I love how God does things, points to things in his scripture that said that really happened. That timing did, is, is exactly what would have happened if you left at this time and this happened and went to this place. I think it drives down our confidence in the fact that God's word is true. You can count on it. It's trustworthy, and it can be listened to. There's probably other reasons, but those are two that come to me today. And so we come now to this passage of Scripture, this good news, bad news. And so Paul, we're not surprised. Paul, after two years of waiting, he's on his way. This shouldn't have surprised us because God told him that he would go to Rome, and even though he had waited a lot, his trust in God is strong And yet things, shockingly for Paul, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised at this point, they don't go easily, do they? Has anything in Paul's life been simple, right? Has anything gone well? I I feel for him. My heart went out to him again in this passage again because I'm like, the man cannot catch a break. Seriously. He's just trying to do what God has called him to. And God continues to allow these curveballs to come. Now, instead of that frustrating us, I think that should remind us again The things that we may consider as we'll see to be bad news, difficult discouragements, are often the very things that God uses to allow us to be encouraged and to see Him at work in our lives. So as we dive into this passage, there's just really two main points. I'm going to talk about some bad news and some good news. At least in our home, typically we like to lead with the bad news. If I say, hey kids, I've got some good news and bad news, they go, well, what's the bad news? Let's get that out of the way so that we can focus on the good news. So we're going to go, we're going to go bad news, good news, and then I want to leave with, with you a few takeaways that I think we see from this passage. Because again, I don't want to get lost in the details of all the crazy things only that happen. I want to know how does this relate to us here and now, Village Bible Church, Sugar Grove, and surrounding areas. How do we apply what we're seeing here so that it makes a difference in our response to the gospel and God's call in our lives. So what we see here first, the, good, the, the, the bad news here is, is that Paul and Luke and those on the ship, they certainly experience deep discouragement. And so the bad news here is that discouragement may come. I see four things that come out of this passage. First, in storms. Right? That's, that's pretty clear. This was an awful storm. The storms that we experience in life. Now, we may not be experiencing storms like what we read here. I, I certainly have, and I have very limited experience on the sea. In fact, my worst experience, I've been on a couple cruises and some boats, etc. I'm not sure I'm the best to be on the sea, but I remember being in middle school, high school. We were off the coast of California. Our friends had gotten a boat, went out for a ride. It was a pretty nice day, actually. I was starving. I went down, ate a whole bunch of food, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and then the waves got a little rockier. Now, I won't, I'll leave to your imagination what happened, but everything that went down came back up, okay? So that was not pleasant for me. But that is nothing compared to what we're we're seeing here in this passage, right? Day after day where there was no ability to discern light from darkness in this abyss. We've seen movies that kind of try to depict this for us. I can't begin to imagine what that was like. 
Maybe you've experienced other storms. Keith mentioned some today. Cyclones and hurricanes and tornadoes and snowstorms. I've driven through or been in some of those. It can feel pretty desperate and pretty hopeless, can it? And that's where, again, I think, my goodness, Paul, you can't catch a break. I feel for you. My heart goes for you. Of course they were feeling discouraged because here they are going, okay, finally God's sending us our final culmination, our destination. We're headed to Rome. We're going to stand before Caesar. And then, bam, what should have taken about four or five weeks, probably five weeks, took four months. And they had all kinds of twists and turns and opportunities where things didn't go their way. They felt afraid, too. How do we know that? Because in verse 24, when the angel appears to Paul, what's the first thing he says? Do not be afraid. All right, he wanted to reassure him, don't be afraid, because Paul felt fear. And I'd love to get inside of Paul's head and know what he was really experiencing. But because he trusted God, and we'll get to that, we see how he believed that God was faithful and true and would keep his promises. But in that moment, he's, got it, he's feeling this fear, like, is this it? Is this how it's going to end? Am I done? you're like me you've been through storms before your storm might be as we heard today job loss or transition move out of the area it might be some kind of relational issue strife with your your spouse or with your children going through a divorce loss of a loved one nowadays with social media and with students at school i mean it could be the shame that comes we hear some horrific stories of kids that are shamed in ways end up taking their lives or responding in such such difficult and in painful ways. I, I don't know what the storms may be or storms you may be experiencing with others. It may be something physical. It may be something circumstantial. It may be something relational, but we all experience storms, and in those storms, we can feel unsettled, we can feel fear, and we can feel discouragement. Closely aligned to that would be suffering. Not only storms that we experience, but the suffering that we can endure. And often, suffering and storms are closely aligned, aren't they? We hit a storm, and in that storm, there's some level of suffering that we experience in that way. Same thing, right? You're going to suffer through a job loss. You're going you're to deal with financial pain. You're going to suffer through relational issues. You're going to deal with the emotional pain that comes from that, the psychological and physiological pain that can come from being shamed or discluded or on the outs or people think of you differently or make perceptions or assumptions that aren't true that attack your identity and sense of, of being in that way. Or just the storms and suffering that come from questioning God, who are you, what are you doing? You've said this, you're not doing this. Like, God, I don't get it, I don't understand. What are you doing right now? Could be cancer, could be illness, could be miscarriage, could be the loss of a child, a loved one, a parent. Could be any number of things, and, and right now I'm sure you're thinking through, some of you are in the midst of a storm right now. Again, not a storm of 14 days in the middle of the sea, having no hope of, or believing that you're not going to survive. But we're often either in a storm, coming out of a storm, or going into a storm, aren't we? Some way, somehow. And God uses those. We'll see. But storms are real, fear is real, and hopelessness is real. So verse 19, Paul, Luke, everybody on that ship, Luke records that all hope of being rescued, saved, being safe was lost. Have you ever felt that way in the storm or in a season of suffering? You start to wrestle with hope. Hope's a powerful thing when you have it. It's a powerful thing when you don't have it as well or you're longing for it or, or clinging to it or wishing for it or if you lose hope. I've not experienced hopelessness 
too many times, and if I have, they've been fairly short-lived. The one example that came to my mind, and yet I recognize that some of you here today have experienced hopelessness, deep, deep abysses of it, seasons where, God, where you just felt God is gone, he's, he's, I have no hope, maybe it's no hope of even living or surviving or no hope of getting out of a circumstance. Those are dark places, and, and Paul and Luke and those on the ship, that's where they were. And I try to imagine what was going through Paul's mind in that moment, right? Again, God told me I'm going to go to Rome, and yet they've lost hope, and I feel afraid. Like, it's kind of, kind of a tension to manage, isn't it? Like, we think sometimes if I trust God and everything's going to work out, then I shouldn't feel hopelessness. And yet we see from men who loved and believed and obeyed Jesus in moments of fear and hopelessness. Did, did, did Paul believe that they were going to sink and God was going to raise them from the dead? I don't know. What, what did he think? What was going to happen? That, that, that hopelessness that settled in. I don't know. I remember a, one moment for that in my life a few years ago. Sarah had gotten pregnant, and I was in the midst of quitting my job. We were very much, I think I've shared this, trying not to get pregnant. And so it was like, okay, and then we turned to excitement. And then in the midst of that, in the second trimester, Sarah goes to the doctor and finds out there's no heartbeat. And we're like, what in the world? How does this make sense? Give us a baby. It seems like it's an immaculate conception. You know, it's crazy. What's going on here? It's, and, and then you take it away. I remember we came back and we're sharing that with our kids. And one of our children said, well, I'm going to pray that, that Jesus brings the baby back to life. And it was like, can, can we pray that? Are we, is, is that okay to pray? I mean, seriously, you're wrestling with that. Like, well, I like that. But that doesn't seem possible. I don't, I, I don't want to even hope for that. And we thought, okay, let's pray for that. And there started to build in me in this anticipation, expectation that what if God would do that? That would be amazing, right? What an unbelievable evidence of his goodness and grace in this process. A few days later, Sarah went in to, to, to check again. We just thought, let's just try, and there's no heartbeat, and you can feel hope starting to, to, to fade, but you're still holding on. Well, maybe God just wants something miraculous because she hadn't fully miscarried the baby at this point, so there's still hope until that final point that came that, that she miscarried, and all hope was lost. And that was a dark place. And I was wrestling. I was angry. I was frustrated. I thought, God, this was an opportunity. The hopelessness and fear and concern and all the other storms and suffering and life at that point. Like, and yet still, pales in comparison to what we're seeing here, pales in comparison to some of what you are experiencing now or have. Storms and suffering are real and discouragement comes from them. Seasons of waiting is another spot that I think discouragement comes, not only in storms and suffering, but seasons of waiting. Paul had experience we've already referenced with waiting. He waited a lot, didn't he? He waited a ton. We, we read through Acts, and we can read it. You can read Acts and, you know, in an hour, really, sit down and read it through like a story, like a book. And yet in that moment, we forget it was five years here, eight years here, two years here, six months here, five months here. Paul spent most of his time waiting. If I'm honest with you, and I've shared this before when I've preached in the past, that I, I can kind of deal with the storms and the suffering, like not perfectly and not always well, but like, okay, like the big stuff, all right, I can get through that. You know what's the hardest for me, where I get the most discouraged? It's the seasons of waiting, waiting on God, waiting to see what he's going to do and how he's going to do it, and if he's going to do what I want him to do, right? We see in this story that, that Paul waited. They waited at least 14 days. Can you imagine that? I have a hard time waiting 14 minutes. 
14 days not knowing what's going to happen with fear, trepidation, losing hope in the midst of this dark abyss where you're, I mean, think of the sickness, I mean, the emancipation of these people. I mean, how, how awful it must have been in that. Pro- we can't even begin to describe how awful those circumstances wouldn't have been and not even sure if you're going to survive. Wishing for death because that would be better than what you're experiencing. Seasons of waiting. Waiting's hard. I I truly think that waiting often is the hardest part for me. Waiting to see if and how God is going to come through, at least as I perceive it to be. It's very difficult. We see it even in this passage in in verse verse chapter or um, chapter twenty seven verse thirty. You know, we've already talked about that they did this winter travel they shouldn't have. Should have been a five-week trip through Asia Minor and it ended up being four months. So that in and of itself was a season of waiting. But then you get to 30 where, where Paul has heard from this angel, we're going to be okay. All 276 of you are going to survive as well with me, but you've got to stay on the boat. We've got to stay together. And then you see a couple of guys, some guards that decide, you know what, let's pretend like we're kind of checking things out and they lower in verse 30, they lower down a lifeboat and they're going to escape. And Paul goes, oh, no, 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 you better cut those lines and you better get back in and you're not going to be saved. The part of following God is you've got to play by his rules. You've got you to play by what he shares you need to do. You've got you've to trust his sovereignty and stay in the boat until the time is there to leave. You've got you've to wait. And what I saw here was kind of this balance between pragmatism and faith. Anybody else here struggle with that? Being pragmatic being versus waiting on God? I do significantly. Okay, I've waited long enough. Now it's time to, to jump into action. Like, let's be pragmatic here. We're getting close. I don't know how this is going to work. Let's just, let's take matters into our own hands. Part of discouragement in, in the waiting is, is I want to, I want to do it my way, my timing. And I have a tendency to jump ship rather than wait. And so discouragement, true discouragement can come with waiting. And maybe God has you in a season of waiting now. And finally, not only in suffering and storms and seasons of waiting, how about the discouragement that comes when some don't listen to you? That's discouraging. You know, in this situation, Paul early on says, hey, I, I've got this bad feeling. I, I just want to warn you. I don't think this is going to go how we think it's going to go. I, just, I think we should wait. Let's just hold up. Let's wait until we see, what, see, see when things get a little bit better and we get past this the stormy season of winter travel. And, and they don't listen to him, do they? And I see a great reminder here, a couple things. One, the majority is not always right. Often not right. Sometimes they are, but we have to be careful to just go with what the majority says. The majority says, no, let's push on, let's do this, this is our best chance, let's go. Second thing is that those in charge and those in authority are not always right either. Now, this is not, a, this is not an encouragement to say we need to you know, never follow and let's rebel, rebel against the man. No, it's not that. But we need to be careful and discerning and ask good questions and have wisdom in the process of making sure that we're hearing God's voice strongest, not just man's voice, and make sure man's voice, those that God have put in authority and leadership over us, are following God's voice in that process. Maybe for you it's in other circumstances where you're seeking to share the gospel, you're trying to be obedient to it, to those around you, and they're just not listening to you. Those around you are not listening. And it can be discouraging to want to share truth, like Paul, and not have them listen to you. Discouragement's real, isn't it? You have it, I have it. Some of you are here today dealing with deep discouragement, maybe in one of those areas. 
Paul and Luke and Aristarchus and the rest on that ship had experienced fear and loss of hope. That's the bad news, right? We see it, we get it, it's illustrated for us extremely well. All, verse 19, all hope was lost. But here's the good news, and this is why the gospel is not just good news. It's great news. It's life-changing, life-transforming news is, hey, that's the bad news, but let me tell you the good news. The good news, first and foremost, is that God redeems our bad. What seems to be bad is often not bad in his economy, in his, his sights. It can be something that is used for such good. And so what we see here, I think, are four things, and I'll move through these quickly, four areas that I think we can find encouragement by trusting in God's first, his promises. God's promises. See, God had promised Paul that he was going to take him to Rome. He told him, you're going to stand before Caesar, and you're going to have an opportunity to be able to share my truth with him because Paul was all about spreading the gospel from the Jews to the Gentiles, right, to the ends of the world. God was using him as his missionary to reach those who had formerly not been reached. And so this was all part of his plan. And his promise was, I'm going to get you there. And he does it in a pretty sweet way, in my opinion. He allows an angel to come to Paul and say, you know what, Paul, I know you're getting scared. I get it. I know you're losing hope, but let me tell you, you're going to make it. You're going to get there. I told you you're going to get to Rome, and you're going to get to Rome. What I promised you will come through. God fulfills his promises, doesn't he? We've seen that all through Acts 27. God is good for his word. His promises are true. They're time-tested, and they're trustworthy, aren't they? See that all through Scripture, it's why we can trust his word and what he says in his word and the promises that he has given us, even when in the moment it makes no sense or little sense to us from a human perspective. We can trust. We can trust that God will see us through. And in that process, we don't need a new promise from God. Often we're searching for a new promise. In the midst of the storm, we can become convinced, I need a new promise. Or at least if you're like me, I need to know how the promise is going to work out. Okay, I get it. Promise is true. God, help me out and tell me how exactly. Like, I'm a planner. It would be helpful if I could know the details. Hey, just fill me in. Give me some cliff notes. How is it going to work out? And God comes to us and he says, you don't need a new promise. You need to hear the same promise again. God has promised you will be brought safely through and you will reach your journey, your journey's end in Jesus Christ. That's what he said to Paul. That's why there's that good, hey, you're, you're going to make it. Nobody's going to be hard. Hey, but, but then Paul, but you're still going to run aground, okay? I'm not just going to open it up and just all of a sudden it's going to calm. It's still going to be difficult. It's still what's going to happen in storms, but you're going to be okay. Trust me. He wants the how. I want the how, and God gives the reminder. You don't need a new promise. I'm constantly searching. Give me something new, something else, something else that I can be reminded that God's faithful and true. God says, my promises haven't changed. Promises like what we see in first or in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. I'm sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion to the day of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 41:10, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous hand. He doesn't tell us how he's going to uphold us with his righteous hand. He just says I will. I promise you I will. Philippians 4.19, Paul again, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Our God keeps His promises. He may not show up with an angel in the midst of your despair and your hopelessness and fear, and in a very you know, real way speak to you in that way, but He has given us His Word, chocked full of His promises, of experiences that show and prove Him to be faithful. And He says, you don't need a new one. You need to be reminded of this. Because at the end of the day, all were brought safely to land, right? 276 guys, we assume most were men or all men, were brought to shore safely. And if we're honest, I, I think even without knowing that, that, based on what we've seen with God, we would assume that's how it's going to end, right? We had no doubt that God would keep His promise. And isn't that kind of a curious or, or funny thing? When we read God's Word, we never wonder how the story is going to end. It's a foregone conclusion. God will keep His promises because He always does. But how will He keep His promise? Again, that's what I think gets to the heart of the question, right? That's the question we find ourselves asking over and over again in the storm is how. When Paul needed reassurance that God was going to deliver him, God didn't tell him how. In fact, in fact God simply reminded him of the promise he had already made. And some of us here, myself included, need to be reminded that God has already promised you that he will see you through. He's not probably or may not going to tell you how, but he is faithful, and you can count on that. You can take it to the bank. He will fulfill his promise to you. Secondly, I see it in our encouragement comes from being reminded of God's provision, trusting in God's provision, not just his promises, but his provision. And this is just a brief one, but I see it in verses 2 and 3. We've seen God care for Paul in different ways throughout the journey in Acts, providing friends to come around him and people to support him. We see it here again. Even Julius looks kindly upon him, and before they set out on this awful, treacherous journey, he allows him to be kind of released and, and go and be cared for by his friends. Even in the midst of his imprisonment, he's allowed to bring Luke and Aristarchus and others to be able to come alongside and care for him. Isn't God good in that way? And even in the midst of those, those difficult experiences that he shows up and he provides us moments of encouragement through his provision. Some of that's his provision of physical things. Others of that is provision of his encouragement that comes maybe through others or through experiences or moments or through his word. But we can trust God and trust his provision. Third, his purpose. Encouragement comes from trusting in God's purpose. And, and I see a couple of ways. First, God's purpose in this process was to spread the gospel. And he was using Paul in a very specific way to help make his word, his gospel, reach the uttermost parts of the world or at least reach Rome to the epicenter of the Gentile world. And so our encouragement can come in the fact that God's purposes will be fulfilled. His promises will be filled, fulfilled. His purposes will be fulfilled. And I saw some pretty fascinating things in this passage. One is, is God used Paul on the ship to be able to share the gospel. He had already been doing that, right? For years, even in this perceived holding pattern, he was having opportunities to share the gospel with different people. Positions of authority, he was having opportunity, we're sure, to be able to share with slaves in the household. There were people that were coming to know Christ. God's purposes is happening, even in the midst of our waiting, our storms, our suffering, and people not listening to us. It's happening. And we see this here again. Likely, some of those prisoners were headed to the Colosseum. They were going to die. They weren't going to be able to get to you know, some cushy you know, prison to live out the rest of their lives. They were going to die how gracious and merciful of God to allow them to intersect with Paul, 
for Paul to be able to encourage them and share the gospel and for them to experience this. How many people on that ship do you think came to know Christ? I have no idea, but I've got to believe there were a number of them, maybe Julius, maybe others, with their influence and part of God's purpose in using that storm was for his gospel to be furthered and to be shared and to experienced by others. Praise God for that, of how he works in the midst of our storms, especially in suffering. Let me go back to suffering for a moment. You know, it can be hard to understand why we suffer. I do. I I struggle with it the times that I have. And yet I find that God can use our affliction in unexpected and surprising ways. As we turn to God for comfort and love in the midst of trials, it also empowers us to help others, doesn't it? No wonder that Paul learned to see purpose in his own suffering. It gave Paul the opportunity to receive God's comfort, which then he could share and bless others with. We're not asked to deny our pain and our suffering, but we can take heart in God's ability to use it for good. We can be encouraged by what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 4. God comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with, with, the, with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Now, I'm not saying that that's a pleasant process. I'm not, I'm not jumping for joy in the midst of my suffering and pain going, yes, another opportunity that now I can go and bless somebody else. Thank you so much for this storm and this suffering, all right? I'd love to get closer to that. I'd love to be able to see that a little bit sooner. But at the end of the day, we know that that's a difficult place to be. And yet holding to truth in that moment going, my God will redeem this. He will use this. He will make good out of that. Often that's hindsight 2020, right? Mentioned our situation, we've had four miscarriages. Each one of them have felt hopeless and despair and difficult, and yet out of all of them, we've seen good. We've seen opportunities to care for others and share and encourage. I've mentioned I had cancer a few years ago. I can, I can now genuinely say that God used cancer in many ways to save my life because it made me deal with things I never would have dealt with and still am dealing with and root out sin issues and character struggles and all of that. And Sarah and I have had opportunities to encourage and care for people like we never would have because we experienced it. God loves to remind us and encourage us of his faithfulness and trustworthiness in his purposes, even in suffering, even in storms. And finally, we find encouragement in God's peace, trusting in God's peace. Trusting in God's peace. You know, peace is a funny thing. If you're like me, peace is one of those things that I kind of relate with when everything's calm. Right? We talk about, I want a peaceful home. That, you know, my, everybody's in line. Everybody's sitting nice at the dinner table. There's no mess in the house. Like, that's peaceful, right? And yet, that's really a misnomer. Peace is not the absence of storms. Peace is not the absence of suffering. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Do you know what peace is? Peace is God's presence in the midst of those things. And we can find encouragement because God gives us more of himself in the midst of the suffering and in the storms and the seasons of waiting. He doesn't often take them away. He says, you get more of me in that moment. I'm giving you more of me. And so peace, and I like to add another P into that, it's presence. We can be encouraged because in the midst of our darkest, deepest storms, God says, John, here's more of me. You get more of me in this moment because I like to convince myself that I can do things on my own. If I just work harder and try harder, and yet every one of these, his promises 
his provision, his purpose, and his peace, none of those are things that I can do. None of those are things that I can manufacture. I am 100% dependent upon the Holy Spirit meeting me in those places and bearing the fruit of his Spirit in and through me. The gospel is not about what you did or what you can do or what you bring to the table. The gospel is all about what Christ has done on your behalf. Our encouragement comes not from what we've done and what we've endured. It comes from what Christ has done for us on the cross and giving us more of himself. So that's the good and the bad news, right? The bad is discouragement's going to come. The good is in the midst of that God's going to show up in big ways. Not how we often planned for it or thought, well, God, this would make a lot. I, I do this all the time. It would, this would be really a good scenario, God, if you just listen to me. Like, if we work through the storm and the suffering this way, I think everybody wins, especially me, right? And yet God goes, you know what, John, thank you. Appreciate your insights. Uh, how about I'll just do it my way because I'm faithful and I'm good and I've proven myself throughout all of history and all of mankind. Four takeaways as we finish. And these are just kind of, okay, if we were to gather what I see in the midst of these verses and just kind of put a bow on them, here's four things that came to my mind. First, this will sound a little pithy, but just stick with me for a minute. Take heart and trust God. Even as I say that, I'm like, man, if, if I'm in the midst of a storm and somebody, hey, John, just take heart and trust God. And yet two different times in this passage, Paul, in verses 22 and 25, Paul says to those around him, says, take heart, take courage, be courageous. It will be just as the angel said, and, and this is the God I serve, and I trust him. Take heart and trust God. Some of you right now are struggling to take heart and trust God and have courage because you're beat down and you're in despair and you're losing hope. And I can't fix that for you, but I, I just want to wrap my arms around you and say, take heart. Take heart, our God is good. He's faithful. His promises, his provision, his purpose, his peace. It's there. It's available. Take heart. He is doing something even if you can't see it. He's a God of comfort and grace in your lives right now. Don't give up. Trust him. He's trustworthy. John Piper is one of my favorite authors and theologians. And there's a quote that resonates with me. You'll see it on the screen. He said, occasionally we need to weep deeply over the life you hoped would be, grieve the losses, then wash your face, trust God, and embrace the life you have. Some of us sitting in here today regret the life we have. We wish we were living somebody else's life. We wish the circumstances were different, and I get that. I have had moments of that in my life. Take heart and trust God. You are living exactly the life that he designed and desired for you to have. And you know what? Take a moment or two to weep over the things that you wish, the regrets that you have, the things that haven't played, and then wash your face and trust God and take heart that he loves you and that he's intimately involved in the details of your life. Secondly, wait hopefully. My initial thought on this was to say wait patiently. And that's still true, but, but the idea of wait patiently to me is more that, like, i got to grind it out. And, and there's, there's a lot in, in the Christian life that can feel that way. What I want to help myself do better and, and ask the Lord to help me with is to wait hopefully. In the seasons of waiting to believe, you know what, all right, God, what has he got? What's next? Not always with a smile on my face, but with an expectation and a patience that says, God, right around the corner it could be, what's next? What do you have? I want us in those seasons of waiting to wait expectantly and hopefully believing again we serve the God of the universe, the creator of the world, the one who gave us his son. I want us to wait, hopefully. Thirdly then, encourage or be encouraged by others. 
Some of you right now are not in a major storm or in maybe a season of waiting and suffering, but you know people that are. I want you to find somebody to encourage and love and come alongside him and care for. Encouragement's a powerful tool, isn't it? Powerful emotion, a powerful way to support. Some of you need to be encouraged, though. You're in the midst of that suffering and storm, but you've surrounded yourself with all the wrong people. Not people that are building you up. You're not faithfully a part of community in some way, and you're wondering then, why am I feeling so hopeless? Part of it is you need to get yourself around people that are going to build you up and encourage you with truth, get in your face at times, wrap their arms around you, love you in that process, know when to push and when to pull back. And I encourage you. Paul did that, right, with the, with the guys on that ship. Verse 30, 30, you know, previous to that, and before they're trying to jump ship, he's, he's gathering together, they're breaking bread, He's saying, take some food, be encouraged. You know what? We're going to be okay. God is faithful. And there's probably somebody in your life this week that needs to hear that, and maybe you need to hear that yourself. And finally, give thanks. In that moment of breaking bread when Paul is with those guys saying, don't give up, I know it's been a long time. It's been weeks and months, and we're hopeless. It's going to be okay. Like, trust me on this, but more importantly, trust God. What does Paul do? Paul gives thanks to God. He gives thanks. I was reflecting on this week because I am not naturally prone to give thanks. I'm, I'm more critical. I want to see the problem, what's not working, find out all the reasons why, you know, it could be better. And yet, the research out there is fascinating on the power of gratitude. Even from secular and, and the world's perspective, the world gets this in a lot of ways, and we should as Christians get it even more, but they understand the power of gratitude. That even when things aren't going well, the power of saying, what can I find to give thanks for? What, what, what can, I, can I say, God, thank you for this or thank you for that? Yes, there are things that I'm struggling with, but we need to discipline ourselves and ask God to help us to be able to give thanks in all things, Scripture says, even when it's, especially when it's difficult, to be able to give thanks and say, God, I hear you. I see what you're doing. Paul, in that moment, gathered them up. They gave thanks to God that he had brought them through, that all 276 were still living. And they still, at that point, still had to run aground, still had to get to shore. And we'll see in 28, I'd like to say, like, like, you know, kind of spoiler alert, it still doesn't get better for Paul right away, okay? He still has to hold on to God's promises and his provision and his purpose and his peace in the midst because his life is still going to have hardship. This isn't a storybook ending. Yet, but it'll come. It'll come. Take heart and trust God.